Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Sanofi and GlaxoSmithKline are beginning worldwide phase three studies of a new vaccine targeting the original COVID virus as well as the B1351 variant. There are more and more variants now. Paul Lucas is back with us, former uh, GSK president and CEO. Mr. Lucas, good to have you back with us. How are you? Uh, good to be here, Roy. Um, I'm doing well. Thank you. So what can you tell us about the process that's been carried out so far, which will have brought this Sanofi GSK, GSK vaccine to phase three clinical efficacy study? And how far is that from becoming a viable vaccine? Yes, good question. Well, this is all part of the evolving vaccine story, and it's uh, it's a pretty good part of the story again, which is great. Um, lots of interesting things about this vaccine. First of all, uh, it comes from a partnership between Sanofi and GlaxoSmithKline, who are the two largest vaccine companies in the world. Who would have ever thought that they would get together uh, to cooperate in producing a, a vaccine for COVID or for anything else? But they've done it because they felt it was the right thing to do in this pandemic. So uh, good story there. Uh, what, they, what they're producing is, a, is what's called an adjuvanted recombinant vaccine. So that's, a, that's quite a mouthful. But basically what it is is it's uh, taking Sanofi's antigen, which is the component of the vaccine that produces the antibodies, uh, it takes their antigen, and they combine it with Glaxo's adjuvant, and an adjuvant is basically a booster. Um, so that booster actually boosts the response to the antigen. So they put those two together, and they produce a fairly uh, effective vaccine. Uh, it's nice because uh, this is using technologies that uh, have already been used in other vaccines, so it's not a brand-new technology or platform. So. So that's, that's good news about the, this vaccine. Um, you know, when they first tried to produce a vaccine, uh, their first shot at it didn't work very well in the elderly, so they had to reformulate. And they did that, and they've come back. They've run their Phase two trial, which is in six or 700 patients, and they found that this was highly effective in seroconverting uh, patients. So that means basically that those patients developed significant levels of antibodies from uh, the new vaccine that they've produced, and at all ages, which is terrific. So right from the young through to the elderly. So uh, that's good. And as you mentioned, now they've moved into they're moving into phase three, which is a study, a uh, global study. Uh, they're going to be doing this in the U.S. and uh, Africa, South America, and Asia. Uh, there'll be 35,000 patients, as there usually are in these phase three trials. And um, as you mentioned, I think it's exciting that they're going to do. They're going to have a lot of focus on the variants, and particularly, particularly the uh, the African variant. Uh, they want to see how effective that is in uh, in clinical practice. And uh, they're also looking at this vaccine from a, from a booster perspective. Will it be an effective booster as we get uh, beyond uh, 2021, for example? So, so how quickly can that be carried out, Mr. Lucas? How well, quickly, be, how soon could this vaccine be on the market? Well, it could be on the market by the end of the year. So um, I, think, I think what people have seen is that in the production of other vaccines, once they start a phase three trial, so they've already proven in a small group of patients in phase two that it, that it works and that it's safe. Um, so now they go into the larger scale 
uh, trial, and 35,000 patients, if they do it on a global basis, which they're going to do, will only take them three, four months to do. Uh, they'll analyze the data. Hopefully, it'll be good. Uh, they'll show, you know, hopefully 90-plus percent effectiveness. They'll put that submission together. They'll do a rolling submission with the regulatory authorities like Health Canada and FDA, like the other vaccine manufacturers have as well, and um, hopefully have approval before the end of the year. Uh, so uh, the timing for, for us in Canada right now isn't going to help us uh, with the current challenges we have. But I think this could very well play a role uh, going forward with, uh, with uh, vaccinating against variants and potentially as a third or fourth uh, dose booster. So I'm going to ask you about that because I was looking at the news release and uh, quoting from it the, that uh, GSK and uh, Sanofi will be combining their efforts, I'm paraphrasing now, with CureVac to, quote, develop next generation vaccines with the potential to address multiple emerging variants in one vaccine, end quote, which is what you just said. It sounds positive, but how is it possible to prepare for emerging variants if the composition of those variants is unknown? Well, uh, the nice thing about these vaccines is because it's a rec- this is a recombinant vaccine, and, and the same applies to the mRNA vaccines, you can adapt those and change those fairly quickly uh, to respond to variants that pop up in the population. So uh, that's the nice thing about these technologies. So as you just pointed out very nicely, you have a science background and I don't. <laughs> yes, it, it, it helps. It's helped a lot in my career over the years. Uh, but, but one of the exciting things that you pointed out is that, you know, potentially what you might see, uh, like what we see with flu vaccine today, you know, the flu vaccine that, that people get, I don't know if they realize this, but there are three or four different viruses in that vaccine. So the concept of taking the COVID vaccine and putting three or four variants, uh, variant coverage in that is, is potentially feasible. So that, that could be an exciting development. Uh, looking forward to all of this. We need the good news. We need the upside, particularly since we're now finding out, finding out that the Indian variant is more and more present uh, in Canada and in the UK, they're saying. More than two-thirds of the new cases are of the Indian variant. The deputy leader of the Conservative Party, Member of Parliament for Manitoba, Candace Bergen, exchanged words with Prime Minister Trudeau in Parliament concerning China scientists working with Canadian counterparts in Canadian labs. Now, Mr. Trudeau accused, and we're going to play a bit of the soundtrack for you in a moment, accused um, Ms. Bergen and the Conservative Party of, if I understood correctly what he's saying, of being borderline racist. Candace Bergen joins us. What were you asking, Mr. Trudeau? Well, as you just briefly described it, uh, it was actually about two years ago that two researchers who had gotten clearance, uh, they were from China, and they were actually part of the, uh, con- the, uh, the Chinese Communist Army, were allowed to come to Canada and work in our national microbiology lab located in here in Winnipeg, actually, um, a, a, a top level lab that deals with the most dangerous uh, viruses and diseases in the world. Uh, these scientists were allowed to come in and participate and uh, the, the lab was then warned by CSIS that these people posed a threat and so they were removed. 
what that sparked was uh, a lot of questions and you know there's been more information coming to light but questions about why the government had decided to cooperate and do research with the communist uh, chinese communist military those were the questions that we were asking we started asking them earlier this week and then we asked them again at the prime minister on wednesday okay so very, i serious questions about a serious issue that that deserved a serious answer all right so let, let's let's hear the question as you put it to the prime minister and then his answer and this is just under a minute and a half go ahead and play it the problem is and the prime minister maybe does not realize this is communist china cannot be trusted i know he admires their basic dictatorship i know he liked to do fundraisers with them over the years i know he thought they were the first go to for vaccines but at this point we would hope that he would learn a lesson and put the safety security and protection of canadians above this fascination he has with the communist regime so again will he commit to ending this research and this cooperation with a regime that not only doesn't have our interest in mind, but actually wants to hurt Canada. Honourable Prime Minister. Mr. Speaker, yes, from the beginning of my career onwards, I have uh, worked with many Chinese Canadians and indeed had fundraisers with them. And the rise in anti-Asian racism we're seeing over the past number of months should be of concern to everyone. And I would uh, recommend that the members of the Conservative Party, in their zeal to make personal attacks, not start to push too far into intolerance uh, towards Canadians of diverse origins. We will continue to stand up to defend Canadians' interests, Canadian security. Uh, we will continue to make sure that we're doing everything we can to keep Canadians safe while participating in the global research community uh, and uh, stand up for tolerance and uh, diversity. So there's the exchange that took place between Ms. Bergen and Mr. Trudeau uh, in Parliament. Um, so did I, I don't want to put words in your mouth. What what did he what did he say to you? What did you get from that answer? Well, he, 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 this is what he does. He said, uh, you're asking me a difficult question and I don't have an answer to it. And so I'm going to call you a name and, and try to shut you down, which is, uh, you know, you, you see this from some of the worst uh, bullies we, you've ever encountered, whether it was uh, as a child or as an adult, right? This is what they do. So he basically called me a racist because I was asking questions about communist China regime. So, I mean, I just find that it, it's it's so uh, it, it's not even worthy, I felt, of even a response because it's so low. But what's particularly disturbing about it, Roy, is this is exactly what the communist government in China uses to try to shut down dissent. They say, if you are critical of our government, we're going to call you racist. We're going to say you, you are anti-China. And it couldn't be further from the truth. Um, I mean, our quarrel and our disagreement is not with the people of China. In fact, it's the opposite. We feel the people of China many times are victims of this communist dictatorship. And many Canadian uh, Chinese people or people who come to Canada from China and are living here, uh, hoping to become citizens, they have left because they want a better life. They want freedom. And they are being intimidated by this regime. So Trudeau actually plays into what the communist government does in their intimidation bullying tactics. And some of my colleagues uh, talked about it later on. Nellie Shin, uh, one of our members of parliament, Kenny Chu talked about it and how disturbing it is. So it, it's very typical though of what Trudeau does when he is backed into a corner, he calls names and uh, and tries to turn the table. And, and I think he got caught on this one. It's not gonna work. Well, I, I would have appreciated had Mr. Trudeau um, 
answered your question, or if you didn't like the question, you should have challenged the substance of the question and not uh, painted you as uh, as a borderline racist, because that's what I got out of it. CSIS itself, our National Security Agency, had concerns about this kind of relationship that was going on with with uh, with, with, with at least two uh, individuals in the lab in Winnipeg working alongside Canadian um, scientists, and we're going to be speaking with uh, your colleague Michael Chong about that tomorrow. But there's no, there was no reply. So is this what's, is this what's what's happened in 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 government in Canada in the federal government, Ms. Bergen, where they're just, where it's agenda as a, as opposed to substance for for the uh, for the Canadian people who who want who want information, who want substance, and are just frankly so fatigued with what they're hearing instead. Well, and the, and the end result is not a good result for Canadians. Uh, I mean, my mind goes back to early 2020, January 2020, when, when uh, coronavirus was first being reported uh, coming out of Wuhan. And we were asking the government questions around flights coming into Canada. Uh, were they going to be shutting down the borders in any way, stopping flights coming in? I don't know if you recall, but I do. We were called racist by, by them as well. The Liberals called us racist at that time um, by even at, for even asking the question at the, at the the end of the day, a, a year and a half later, uh, Canada is at uh, one of the last countries to open up and we are suffering possibly a fourth wave. A lot of it caused because the Prime Minister didn't act and instead resorted to calling names. My concern with this, Roy, is I don't understand, and this was my second question to him, his fascination and his feeling that he needs to placate communist China. I don't understand why he doesn't feel he can criticize them, where he can say, you know, even if he'd answered us, listen, we, we recognize there is a problem. Our priority is the protection of Canadians, and we will not be doing research with a communist regime that we can't trust. You know, that would have been a substantial, meaningful answer, but he can't bring himself to do that. And I don't understand, and I think Canadians should be concerned why is Trudeau so beholden to communist China? Yeah, well, is it, it took, it, Ms. Bergen, it took him a long time to eventually say something challenging to Beijing about Michael Spavor and Kovrig. And, and they're off the radar now. I don't hear much concern or any concern from, from the federal government uh, about them. And frankly, I don't hear enough from the opposition parties either. But it, it, it's frustrating to, to hear this kind of exchange going on, and it must be doubly frustrating to have somebody who's opposite you in Parliament, supposedly doing the will of the people of Canada. You were all supposed to do that. But now, now you're being painted as a racist for asking what I thought was a substantive question. And then the damage that it does to actually combat real racism uh, that uh, people of Asian descent are, are, are experiencing. And I think that was the point that my colleagues Nellie Shin and Kenny Chu were trying to make. And I thought they made it very well. When Trudeau plays into that narrative, it actually uh, damages uh, Asian Canadians who love this country and don't want to see this country put at risk or uh, in any way compromised by communist China. And so that's but very disappointing. As well. Okay, so let me ask you though this question, and I'm sure you've thought about this. What does it say about the the believability and the and the substance of federal government, federal governance, when it d- deteriorates to the point where I mean, it could, it could be you. We could this could be reversed, I suppose. But in this case, it's you asking a question, and the response comes back that you're borderline racist. What does it say about what federal governance has has devolved? Into is there is there just no communication that's taking place at all? 
Well, Brian Lilly wrote, uh, wrote an article and he said about this and basically he said, we have a prime minister who is not a serious leader and he can't deal with serious issues. And, 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 and that was my point at the beginning of our discussion here, Roy. This is what a child does. When they don't have an argument, oh. they start to call names. And we have uh, a government right now. I mean, we have a prime minister who's worn blackface and brownface more times than he can count. He fired an indigenous woman because she spoke to him uh, truth to power. You know, he's he has many times shown himself to be a fake feminist. And I would say he is showing himself now to not be authentic when he says he respects diversity and uh, wants to support people of uh, diversity of uh, backgrounds. His actions don't back that up when he uses their plight uh, as a very lame and empty attack on his opposition, all because he actually doesn't have a real answer. Well, that, that was certainly that was no answer that you received. Uh, you received just got a just a nasty accusation of being borderline racist, and I agree with you 100 percent that Jody Wilson-Raybould was treated shabbily, and Mr. Wilson-Raybould should be heard from, and she should not have been shut down. There's still that that file should remain open. Ms. Bergen, thank you so much for taking the time. It's sometimes bewildering, confusing, certainly frustrating for those of us on the outside to t- take a look at, at what's going on in the inside. Roy, can I just say I appreciate so much you covering it. I think one of the most, the biggest frustrations is to see many in the media, especially the mainstream media, ignore this kind of despicable behavior by the Prime Minister. So thank you for asking me to come on and talk about it. I appreciate that. Tyler Shandro is the Alberta Minister of Health. He joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Mr. Shandro, thank you very much for taking the time. Oh, thank you very much for having me. Pleasure to speak to you. I want to ask you first, uh, before we get into the uh, reopening of the province of Alberta, about this story. COVID-19 vaccines were being offered free to Albertans and all Canadians at the Montana-Alberta border by the Blackfeet Nation in Montana. The vaccinations were first accepted by authorities. There was no 14-day quarantine when Albertans turned around and returned to Canada. And then suddenly it was halted. I just want to know what you can tell us about that. Do you think it had anything to do with Ottawa not wanting the visual of long lines of Canadians in vehicles massing at the Canada-U.S. Order, border for, for vaccination? Well, uh, maybe first I'll start off by saying it's, it's great news to hear that uh, sounds like those vaccines are, are going to be um, back up and running again for, for Canadians because it's just such a fantastic story to hear about neighbors uh, wanting to step up. Uh, it, it, it's the type of story we hear so little about during COVID, uh, but these kind of stories where people are stepping up and helping their neighbors. Yeah. And uh, those innovative ways where we can help each other and, and some of the examples where you know, uh, you know, bureaucratic, uh, officious decisions have, have, have gotten in the way of, of that type of innovative thinking is, has been frustrating. Uh, we have seen that sometimes, but it's, it's good to hear, though, that at least that... Um, that whatever decisions were made are, are being reversed and, and those uh, vaccines are being offered again. Yeah, it is. And uh, But the question uh, that I have is, was it a political decision that uh, was taken by Ottawa because they didn't like the visual of Canadians lining up at the Canada-U.S. border to be vaccinated in the United States? Well, um, look, I, I've been uh, frustrated myself with um, some of the decisions we, we've had from the, the federal government throughout uh, covid I think there's been, you know, at the very beginning, remember in 2020, there was almost no help for provinces for procuring PPE. Um, seems like, you know, we, we knew that the, the role of the vaccines was going to be a marathon. It was going to take months to get out. 
but we started that marathon, you know, three months late uh, because the the delivery schedules for the procurement uh, agreements the federal government entered into uh, didn't mean that the, the vaccines came to to Canada until mid April, really, uh, in in big big amounts, which meant that we uh, you know saw. Uh, variants out uh, outrun the uh, the vaccine procure, uh, rollout, which meant you know another round of uh, another spike in, in a lot of provinces like ours, mm-hmm. and uh, another round of tightening of restrictions. So it's been been pretty frustrating seeing um, some of the decisions we've had from the federal government. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, let's move on to the other thing then, and that's the opening of the province of Alberta, uh, the quickest fully reopened province in Canada, quite possibly as soon as 70% of Albertans are vaccinated. is Could that be by the 27th or 28th of June? Tell, tell us, please, tell the rest of the country about the reopening plans for Alberta. Sure. Well, like BC and like Saskatchewan, um, we're using similar metrics. We're, we're looking at uh, the vaccination percentages. So what we're, we're doing is, is um, moving through in, in three different stages. Uh, the first stage, um, if, if, if uh, the... Um, Eligible Albertans, 50% of them have had their first dose. And then for second stage, 60%, third stage, 70%. Um, after we get that percentage of vaccine uptake, and for example, stage one, we got to 50% on May 18th. Wait for two weeks because it takes two weeks for that full protection to kick in for those uh, for that first dose. And, uh, and then we can move forward. Now, the first step is a, a very moderate step because we're still looking to, uh, to continue to see our numbers come down. We want to have a, a robust, more accelerated reopening when we get to stage three um, because we know we can do that when we have a lower baseline. So we need our cases to still come down in, in Alberta through um, a moderate step one. Um, and if we do that, and look, the, the vaccine rollout in, in Alberta has been tremendous. Um, I think we are, are leading the, the nation with our vaccine rollout. Um, that and, and we see the the number of bookings in the next 24 days mean that we we could get to that 70 percent by getting the first dose in um, in, in mid uh, to early June, which means then yes, two weeks after that it could be end of June, first week of July when we uh, can move forward with stage three, which would be no restrictions other than you know the the typical health and safety protocols you could have in in long-term care, for example, or in hospitals. Okay, so as the Minister of Health, I'm sure your desk as uh, your laptop is uh, filled with information about variants. And at the moment, it's the Indian variant, which is showing up in increasing numbers in Canada and in the UK, where they say that it accounts for more than two-thirds of new cases. This is according to the British government. What, uh, what, what can you tell us about your concerns about this Indian variant? And does it have the potential to cause uh, great challenges as far as the reopening of the province is concerned? Well, all of the variants of concern are, by definition, a concern to us. And so it's one of the reasons why um, we, we found that our border pilot project in Alberta in, um, in the, the fall and, and the winter uh, was really helpful. It allowed us to have more positive samples that we were be able to um, be able to test for all the variants of concern. Uh, when it comes to the Indian variant, uh, what we're, we're looking at is, is trying to be uh, creative and innovative again in being able to um, test as many positive samples as we can, um, looking to, to do that, the sequencing as well, the testing for the variants of concern, including that Indian variant, um, and then trying to find some, some targeted ways of, um, uh, of containing the, uh, the variants as they, they um, are expected to, to come into to our province as any other province. Um, so we're still looking at those innovative ways, trying to build on, on what we did, what were successes for the other variants. Um, and um, it, it may also be looking at what the you know, second dose strategy is in, in Alberta and, and where some of the, um, 
the, the variants of concern, like the new variant, are, are more prevalent in um, in some of our communities. Uh, the the issue of of COVID and um, and the pandemic has been particularly rancorous at times in Alberta. It's become a political battleground. Uh, would you speak to that? We, you know, Ms. Notley, who's the NDP leader, wants to see evidence that the reopening plan is based on sound science. I hear you telling me that that's what you're telling her. Yeah, well, <laughs> um, hmm, what, what can I say? I mean, it's a real daytime radio talk show, so uh, I, I think uh, most of my opinions on, on that probably uh, aren't uh, fit for a, a radio show like yours, but uh, uh, I'll say, look, um, we have been... Uh, um, been following the science. Uh, this is a, um, a, a plan that was brought to first to, to me by our public health folks, and it's, it's based on the science. It's based on looking what, what happened in other jurisdictions, and, and looking at in particular two bookends. Uh, you know, the United Kingdom and their success, and, and maybe a, a situation like Hungary, which wasn't. And and so we, we looked at that that uh, deep dive in, into the data, um, came forward with this proposal. As I said, it's starting off uh, very moderately. We're we're starting off much more moderately than than BC and Saskatchewan. I mean, BC, for example, never closed outdoor dining. Um, where where we have uh, Saskatchewan, I think, reopened outdoor dining two weeks ago. Um, I, I think, look, the, the NDP don't really mean um, you know, they'll base it on the science when they say that. I mean, what they it, it's uh, it's a code for them and just. We just don't like what what Jason Kenny likes. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's it's uh, it's it's unfortunate they've they've done that. It, I think in Alberta more than any other part uh, place in the country, uh, COVID has been politicized. It's been really unfortunate to see folks on on either side of the political spectrum. Yeah, it's very unfortunate. Um, very unfortunate. Anywhere where COVID has been politicized, it's it's not a it's not a good thing. But uh, it, let's look at positives. Are, are are you are you confident that the city of Calgary? We'll be bobbing with heads wearing white Stetsons shortly. In other words, a full Calgary stampede. It's I'm in Ontario. What do I what do I know about Stetson? <laughs> well, admittedly, my my hat isn't white. My, my myself, it's a, it's a gray hat. But uh, um, I uh, look, I I I I think that um, the the vaccine uptake uh, for for Albertans is has been you know, we're over sixty percent now. If we look at the next 28 days, we have over 500,000 appointments that are being made. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I think that that shows that we're going to be getting to 70% very quickly. And uh, after that two-week, you know, waiting for that, that full protection to kick in, that does allow us to, it, it probably would be timed uh, right around with uh, that summer festival, but also with many of our other summer festivals. A lot of people are focusing on the Calgary Stampede, but let's remember there are many summer festivals uh, we're looking forward to here in Alberta, and as well as in Canada. And, uh, I, you know, it's, it's, showing, okay. it's showing that that is going to be the case. Minister, thank you for the time. By the way, I lived in Alberta for a year in my, in my uh, younger years, and uh, I did have one of those white Stetsons, and the radio station shortly after I arrived sent me to the Stampede to cover the chuck wagon races. Now, for somebody out of Montreal at the time, I have to tell you, that was a challenge. Well, it's, it's going to be interesting to, to see uh, yeah. the Stampede back in all of our summer. Yeah, for sure. I think it's something all of Prince looking forward to. The Federal Auditor General released a report earlier in the week on the federal government's complete mishandling, in my words, of PPE, medical equipment, early, during the early months of the pandemic. And uh, there was also a report, or part of the report, was Ottawa's addressing Indigenous communities' needs. Karen Hogan is the Auditor General for Canada. She joins us on the Chorus Radio Network. Ms. Hogan, thank you very much for taking the time. How are you? 
very good. How are you doing, Mr. I'm doing well. And uh, thank you for the work you do. Without, without Auditors General, we would be in, uh, in, in far more difficult straits in this country than we are. So really appreciate all you do. Thank you. That's really nice of you to say. Let's, let me begin by asking for your assessment, please, of uh, overall assessment of how Ottawa performed, how the federal government performed when it came to procuring PPE for medical professionals in this country based on what we knew we needed after SARS in 2003. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess if I was to summarize that, I would tell you that the National Emergency Strategic Stockpile, which contains items like gloves and masks, uh, was not ready to support the response to a pandemic. What we found in our audit was that the Public Health Agency of Canada hadn't addressed long-standing issues um, that had existed for uh, over a decade. Um, And hence, uh, the, the stockpile just couldn't handle the surge and wasn't really prepared to respond. But on the positive side, what we did see was that the government uh, reacted and adjusted during the pandemic. And speak to us about that, please. How how quickly and how well did that reaction go? Um, Well, I think at the beginning, obviously, because the stockpile wasn't ready, it was a little slow. But they realized um, rather soon that uh, changes needed to be made. And I think I'd summarize um, how they reacted in four ways. The first was that the Public Health Agency of Canada um, developed a long-term national supply and demand model so that they could assess the needs of all the provinces and territories um, together. Uh, The second thing they did is they moved to bulk procurement. Um, Instead of having every province and territory buy their own personal protective equipment, they moved to uh, uh, a nationwide procurement process, uh, which helped um, the country procure large amounts of personal protective equipment. The third thing the agency did was outsource warehousing and logistics to some third parties uh, in order to support the increase in volume being received, stored, and shipped to the provinces and territories. And then the last item I would highlight as part of the adjustments to the pandemic by the Public Health Agency of Canada would have been the collaboration that they showed with the provinces and territories to develop a scarce resource allocation. So when those bulk purchases didn't always meet the demands, how would they equitably uh, distribute the personal protective equipment across the country? Mm -hmm. If we go back to the initial part of your report, they just, though, they weren't ready. They knew what they were supposed to be doing after 2003. That was clear. The reports were in. And and, uh, PHAC didn't, uh, the public health agency didn't even know what inventory was available. Is that correct? You know, we found a few weaknesses when we uh, went into audit earlier um, or late last year. Uh, the first we found was that uh, the agency had been aware of many of these weaknesses dating back to 2010 when they had done an internal audit themselves. Um, the, the items I would highlight is um, they, they didn't know and hadn't established sort of a needs assessment. So what and how much of each type of personal protective equipment should be maintained in a stockpile in order to respond to a public health emergency. Um, And they hadn't addressed uh, deficiencies in their inventory management system, so their electronic system. Uh, For example, uh, they weren't tracking expiry dates, so uh, they couldn't take action if needed based on what was in the stockpile. Um, And we found, and officials told us, that all of these issues hadn't been addressed mostly because of budget limitations uh, over the years. Budget limitations. Um, 16 tons of PPE had been delivered to China. 
where did how did that factor in into the overall picture and and what did they have to say about that um so we didn't really look at sort of the humanitarian efforts that the um, the national emergency strategic stockpile might have done before the audit we started our audit period around january of 2020 um, and wanted to assess uh, if they had a handle on what was in the stockpile. Um, there was a lot of concerns with what was in the stockpile. It wasn't managed well, as, as we talked about. Mm-hmm. And so we turned our attention to how the response was going and how the government was dealing with the issue at hand, which is a response to support all of the provinces and territories um, across, across the country in an ever-evolving way. Um, because when you, when you really don't have a baseline to start, uh, we felt it was more important to focus on adding value and influencing the response going forward. So uh, the reason I, I mentioned uh, the the issue of the early days of the PPE shortage and the concerns about PPE is that individual citizens like me were being asked if we had N95 masks, would we please take them to to hospitals? and to healthcare facilities. And I had some N95 masks left over from my wife's cancer battle, and I took them to the hospital. And, and I saw the people lining up at the, uh, at the hospital bringing their own supplies of, of PPE for the healthcare professionals at that particular hospital in Burlington, Ontario. And it really struck me that something very seriously had gone wrong here uh, obviously, very seriously gone wrong, and then we have the the reality of healthcare workers. If I if I understand correctly, cleaning out their own PPE for some period of time. Are you? Do you feel confident that after the report and what you know about how they recovered, that we're in a much better space now? Well, I know that they haven't addressed the long-standing issues with the federal national emergency st- strategic stockpile. Um, really, all the items I talked about were how the government reacted to the emerging uh, pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, so they do need to take stock and, and um, you know, really invest in things that, that people just don't see going forward because that's the importance of being prepared for the next, uh, the next emergency. I think one of the items I would want to highlight as being really important, and it even goes back to a report I released in, in March um, about pandemic preparedness, it's that collaboration between uh, provincial and federal governments, um, recognizing that healthcare is provincially managed. And, and when it comes to personal protective equipment, provincial governments um, should all be maintaining their own emergency stockpile. And when that's exhausted or the surge and the need because of an emergency is so great, then they should be turning to the national emergency strategic stockpile. So I do think it's a coordinated effort that all levels of government need to recognize that investing in items we don't see, whether it be, you know, IT systems that support important programs or restocking things in a stockpile like gloves and and masks, should be done before the next uh, emergency and not uh, in a reactive state during an emergency. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Premier Kenny was on this program uh, in, I think it was April of last year, and and I he he mentioned that uh, Alberta had done a very good job in getting ready and having supplies, and they'd actually offered supplies to uh, to the federal government, and the reply that came back from Ottawa was no thank you, but I won't ask you to comment on that. Uh, what about the issue of uh, indigenous communities in this country? You looked mm-hmm. into that. 
So we issued a second report um, earlier this week on uh, health resources for Indigenous communities, and and we looked at two items there, at how Indigenous Services Canada was providing personal protective equipment to Indigenous communities, but also how they provided nurses and paramedics to support uh, the response to the pandemic. I guess how I would describe the story there is, is kind of good news, bad news. And there's two items to the good news, uh, is that Indigenous Services Canada did deliver uh, personal protective equipment to communities uh, rather quickly, on average about 10 days, which is, uh, which is very good when you think about the logistics to reach some of the remote and isolated uh, communities across the country. Uh, Indigenous Services Canada was also able to increase the number of nurses and paramedics that were in Indigenous communities to support the response. But the bad news to all of that is despite um, the ability to increase the pipeline of healthcare workers, Indigenous Services Canada failed to respond to 52% of the requests uh, for extra nurses and paramedics from Indigenous communities. And, And that just highlights how there was already a shortage of healthcare workers in the Indigenous communities, and the pandemic just made it worse, even though um, they were able to sort of increase some supply. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.